Okay, we are in a new episode of the History and Politics podcast, and we have a great guest. We have Oscar Wimber, who is a PhD candidate in, in history at the Abu Academy University, which is studying the relationship of, of mass media and politics in the in the 70s in the U.S. Hi, Oscar. Hi, and thanks for having me. Yeah, so I, I, my, my question is, it's... Uh, how how you you I, I knew about you because you wrote uh, an article in the Washington Post that, that was a very kind of timely article I think when the Roseanne Barr um, controversy happened. So how you 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 get to that? It was very surprising I guess even for you like the, that everything conflates in one moment. Uh, so I I think the the Roseanne Barr controversy, and just to give the context of it, the, the sitcom Roseanne, which ran in the late 80s and, and early 90s, uh, made a comeback uh, two years ago or so uh, in the Trump era and was now decidedly a right-wing show in the sense of that the lead character uh, played by Roseanne Barr was uh, a right-wing character and, and the actress Roseanne Barr Uh, herself has been prolific as, as almost a, a far-right personality, uh, for instance, uh, making very racist remarks on Twitter, promoting conspiracy theorists from, from the right wing. Um, so the fact that she was given this, this network show uh, was really quite controversial and, and, and surprising in, in some ways. Um, but the producers set out to change the conversation and, and take the politics back into uh, network television in a way that you haven't seen in the U.S. since the, the late 70s almost. Um, and, and they wanted to, to have a show that could talk to the divided American uh, populace. But the fact is that the... The concept failed because they couldn't control their their star, uh, and Roseanne Barr's continued racist remarks uh, put the networks in a spot where they actually had to cancel or not cancel the show. They they kept the show, but they let Roseanne go and had to change the the name of the show. And so the piece I wrote was prior to the cancellation, and and my argument was basically that. Even though television uh, entertainment back in the 70s was very political and was able to, to move the political discussion and be a part of the political discussion, even, in, even in the forms of sitcoms, um, the business models and the political changes that we've seen since the 70s really made it impossible for a network sitcom to have that impact today because uh, there's just not that audience out there uh, In the 70s, there were three networks and basically three channels you had to choose from every night. Uh, today, the, the sort of the media environment today, as we all know, is so fragmentized uh, that you aren't able to speak to a public. You're able to speak to a certain public. Yeah, that that's true. I mean, it's it's also a, a remark that is very curious because Rosenbar is a very particular kind of character. I mean, she, she I think tried to be the candidate of the Green Party, so, she, so he mm -hmm. she has 
very particular political views and she certainly is all over the place and her ideas it's difficult to catalogize her but uh, to, to put her in a, a label but but yeah it's 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 kind of the, the way I, I, I discover uh, from you and then so uh, how do you, you came to that topic and and and, 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 and first maybe how do you came to study American history is that common in Finland? Because I I know that there are more, more, there are quite some people studying U.S. and, and, and in particular American history in Finland, but is that common or not that much? Well, of course it depends on, on what you're comparing it to. Uh, obviously American history or, or American politics or American studies Uh, at Finnish universities remains uh, a small subject if you compare it to, to other subjects within the humanities, for example. Uh, so at any given history department, uh, you're not going to find in any way a majority or even a substantial amount of scholars working on the U.S. Uh, so, so keep that in mind that most historians in Finland aren't Americanists by any means. Um, however, in the last decades, I would say that American studies has really grown in Finland, and, and I think I can claim that in the Nordics writ large, uh, we've seen a trend of increasing uh, attention to American history and to American studies as a, as a subject of itself. Um, And I, I guess my personal uh, story or, or scholarly background uh, goes to show uh, sort of this trend and, and some of the some of the signifiers of this trend, uh, mainly the fact that we're really in a global moment, um, and a global moment in, in the 21st century is bound to mean also, in in every sense, uh, an American uh, global moment, if you look at, at at the media saturation. So growing up in, in Finland in the 1990s, um, from a very early age, uh, television that I watched was American television. Um, and, and continuing... Uh, coming of age in the sort of 9-11 world, uh, the politics and the news was very much a, a global news uh, here in, in Finland as well. Uh, what with 9-11 and, and then the, the subsequent war on, on terror and, and the different wars in, in both Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, they weren't only American stories. There were Uh, coalitions in in both of these wars uh, so it, it really was I think this fact that the US uh, was ever present in sort of the the, the media discussions uh, during the last couple of decades um, I think that that plays a huge part uh, in why not only I personally, but why American studies are growing stronger in, in Finland and in the Nordics. And also the fact that 
the current president, obviously, as, as everybody knows, uh, draws attention uh, all over the globe. Uh, but prior to that, Obama was also a president that very much interested people. Uh, people were drawn to his style of communication. And again, his communication was very much a global communication through medias like like social media and, and Twitter and, and so forth. So I think that we're really in a moment where a lot of uh, students are drawn to American studies. And, and obviously that's going to make the the resources and and sort of the interest uh, available for american studies and american history as subjects or or subfields to grow yeah it's it's very particular the moment the 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 relationship between uh, the us and 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 the the place that the nordic countries have also in the us imagination because uh, in the in the campaign trail, like uh, Bernie Sanders has been talking a lot about uh, uh, about the Nordic countries and, and their welfare state, but also yeah. um, Trump and, and many on the on the on the right and have been making these stories about immigrants not adapting in. in particularly in Sweden, where I think is the largest uh, immigration. Uh, mm -hmm. that has come in the last years uh, so so this it's it's like nordics have become in a in a center stage of, of, of the american political discourse like like probably known uh like in no other era maybe because it's it's very curious that that, that role that is playing the, the nordics in the american imagination mm -hmm. i think that's right that it, it's very salient in in certain policy discussions uh, however of course these are are mostly still very limited and especially policy discussions may be more than politics discussions uh, it's somewhat changed I mean Bernie Sanders brought in the Nordics and examples from uh, specific Nordic countries, Denmark, Finland, and, and, and Sweden, um, to sort of make his points of uh, what he would term uh, democratic socialism, but in the Nordics would be more uh, considered social democratic. Uh, and, and that kind of welfare state model that he would have in, in the Nordics, at the same time, it's not like that's entirely new. Uh, the American left has always, or at least in the post-war era, uh, always looked to Scandinavia and to Western Europe uh, for a well state, welfare state model. Um, and reversely, uh, one would say that the American right has warned of the dangers of this democ social democratic welfare state However, in recent years, because of uh, the racist appeals and sentiments on the right, uh, I think that the, the Nordics have really grown into almost a, a bet noir of the right, which in some ways is, is sort of ironic in the fact that the Nordics in many ways used to be a model that the racist uh, and, and the sort of white supremacist right would look to 
for inspiration in terms of being a very uh, not multiracial society back in the day. And now as that is changing, I feel that that it's really become this this boogeyman on the right uh, where we have situations where the U.S. president is tweeting out uh, fake information about terrorist attacks or, or alludes to terrorist attacks in Sweden that have not in fact existed. Uh, so there's really this weird moment for the Nordics in, in the U.S. where both the right and the left is sort of trying to use it as a political weapon. Yeah, it's very interesting. And also it's, it's very interesting to see some kind of difference. I remember an article in a in a more conservative side that, that mentioned the issue of education in, in the Nordic countries and, and put the, for example, when 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 teachers unions mentioned um, the Nordic countries as, as an example, they used to point to Finland, not to Sweden, because Finland has a, a larger public education system, uh, but but Sweden has like a more privatized in some ways. Although some will argue that they are not exactly private schools, the what they are called there, I think, independent schools. Uh, and, and so, so in some ways, and others have, have mentioned that that, that that Bernie talks about about Denmark, but don't mentions that Denmark has uh, a system of flexi security that makes uh, employers be very quick to to very easy for an employer to 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 remove an employee from 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 the from his or her business. So. Uh, it's it's kind of a, a very selectivity. So, so some things on Finland, some things on Sweden, some things on Norway, and it's very curious how how this this game is kind of played in, in some ways. Absolutely, and I, I think you're absolutely right to point out that this political use of the Nordics or of specific countries, be it Finland, Denmark, or or Sweden or Norway, uh, in the U.S. in the U.S. political arena is always going to be very much picking and choosing. Uh, now, while from afar you would look at the Nordics as this uh, cohesive unit of, of very similar societies, and, and that's true when you have sort of a, a long perspective or, or you look at it from afar. Uh, however, when you get into the details, you are bound to find that the countries have very different strengths and weaknesses in terms of the welfare state uh, model. And I think that is that is something that the, the left in the U.S. is also going to have to reckon with, that you can't really, you can't really pick and choose individual statistics or points from the Nordic countries. Now, the U.S. left can very much draw on this welfare model. I think it, it, it makes for good policy, it makes for good politics, um, but it has to be done in an open and, and sort of honest fashion uh, because it opens for attacks from the right. It opens for uh, a, a sort of discussion that isn't necessarily going to be productive if you just pick and choose uh, statistics or talking points. Yeah, 
I mean, you you have been studying American conservatism, and it's it's very it's it's a field that that it has been studied, um, particularly in the in the last year. In, well, I think since the nineties, it has been a very important scholarship, and and more recent years, it it has even grow a lot. And I think that with with the Trump election is going to even increase to try to explain this kind of of, of, of moment that, that that America is living. So I, I wonder, what do you think that that studying the, the American right in studying the American right, you feel that, that that there is some some ways that you can learn from your experience of living in a country that is not American, having a um, a conservative movement that that is not necessarily the same as, as in as in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question. Um, so I think that the sort of main advantage of studying U.S. history uh, in general, uh, and perhaps the American right in particular, from afar or from the outside. Uh, is that you don't necessarily have to go through that process of unlearning, so to speak, the, the high school U.S. history. Um, so so uh, as, as has been documented and, and written about uh, in, in many ways and forms, uh, the, the U.S. high school history education uh, tends to still uh, be very uh, sympathetic to the to the image of the US and, and brush over uh, the more nasty chapters of American history um, if you're not subjected to that high school history um, in the US I think you come to look at American history from sort of a different perspective um, and also the fact that, as you mentioned, the political environment or the social cultural environment that you grow up in isn't dominated and shaped and molded by the U.S. political uh, moment, which makes for a, a fresh perspective and, and sort of can help to identify um, both patterns and questions of inquiry that wouldn't necessarily be visible from the inside. Now, having said that, I still think that it's a huge issue for anybody taking on U.S. politics, and especially in, in this current moment of a 24-hour news cycle, that you're also able to put yourself into that American experience. Um, and I think today that's actually something you can do through uh, all kinds of social media, all kinds of uh, internet sources. We're able to, to follow uh, CNN or, or Fox News online, if not on television. Um, so it's not the same as being inside the U.S., uh, but it does provide an opportunity that wouldn't have been there 30 or, or, or 40 years ago. Um, so I think it's a, a very favorable time 
to be looking at the U.S. from the outside and, and to actually be able to engage with both the current moment and the sort of modern history. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly there are a lot of challenges to the historians of, of the American right, and, and, and there, are, there are a few, but there are some even historians of the American far right, and, and the far right is a very very more has some more complexities although it's, uh, there are moments where the far right and the more mainstream right sometimes put more or less the same topics but with the old right it's it's very curious because it's it's, it's very difficult to, to point what are their influence it has very dissident influence of very different intellectuals uh, there was an article of an american intellectual historian that um jennifer I think Radner Rosenheim, which teach, I think uh -huh. if I'm not wrong, at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and she mentions that 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 that, that the old right is basically the, the the sons of Nietzsche, that that, that they are an expression of a, of a Nietzschean right, but there are others that, that say that they are really a, an inversion of the Frankfurt School, an appropriation of of uh, of the elements of the left, but to, for a for a right analysis, for a right-wing kind of, of understanding, of, understanding of, of the war. And it, there are several issues that, that, that put a very curious perspective because it's true that, that, that there are obviously Nazis and, and, and Google's flag organizations that are not Republicans, obviously, but at the same time, I think the the, the Republican Party has normalized a, 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 a language that, that is uh, deeply xenophobic, uh, uh, deeply Islamophobic, and, and and in some cases it, it, it kind of took takes some of the rhetoric that that is from from the kind of more extremes, and and this kind of forces even the people that are not necessarily an experts in, in the far right to try to understand what, what is going on, how these connections are being made. I think that's absolutely right. That when we look at, at, at the U.S. right, um, and I, I tend to favor the word right over conservatism uh, because it's not necessarily the same thing, uh, but when we look at the history, it, it's never going it to, it's never been, and it's never going to be this monolithic unit that's uh, ideologically cohesive or driving uh, a set of policies that everybody agree upon, uh, because the U.S. obviously is such a diverse and, and such a big country, what you're going to find is... Uh, different factions within both the parties and within the movements, uh, if we're talking more broadly about the right and not the Republican Party. Um, however, I, I would say that, and, and political scientists have talked a lot about this, that, that the partisan sorting, when we move from this moment when you have uh, conservative Democrats and you have liberal Republicans and you have liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans um, from basically from the 60s uh, to the present day what we've seen is that the Republican Party has become the, the right-wing party uh, with the Democratic Party becoming the more left 
if not directly a left-wing party. Um, and so I, I think that there's still those factions within, um, but we're today able to see that as certain factions become dominant, uh, that changes the discourse and that changes the rhetoric and it changes the politics. Um, so I think for many historians, um, it's not necessarily that, that the election, the nomination and the election of Donald Trump changed our view of American history. Um, it's more that it provided a perspective uh, to take that second look in terms of of the continuing struggles within the right. Uh, so I would say that that Donald Trump's election uh, signifies that a certain politic and a certain faction within the right wing of the U.S. has emerged as, at the moment, victorious. Now, these struggles are ongoing, obviously, um, but I really do think that here we again need to bring that attention to mass media. Because if you look at Donald Trump, he really came up uh, and established himself as a political figure through right-wing media. Uh, and there was an excellent New Yorker article by Jane Meyer just out this week talking about the relationship between Fox News and Donald Trump that really makes the point that if we... <laughs> want to understand uh, the White House and if we want to understand uh, the right wing in the U.S. at the moment, we need to put right wing media, be that Fox News or prior to that talk, talk radio like Rush Limbaugh, we need to put them in the center of the narrative and we need to, to really pay attention to what's going on over there as well. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting uh, reflection, and I also think that maybe now it's the time to uh, to of, of historians in the U.S. to look at or, or other historians in, in other parts of the, that are also working on American history because I remember the, that some years ago, uh, I, I, well, I'm, it's probably now a, a decent amount of time ago. Uh, it, uh, there was a book about neoconservatism that was uh, praised in, in the U.S. Uh, by even the mainstream press. That was from Justin Vaisev, if I'm not uh, pronouncing wrong his name. He was um, he's currently working in the French government, if I'm not wrong. But the the issue is he that was his doctoral thesis, and and it was really a very curious uh, event. And, Bill Crystal and Francis Fukuyama both presented the book, which was kind of, of weird. But but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think probably there are many interesting uh, books about uh, American history. That the, the problem is that sometimes uh, in some countries, but the tenure uh, track laws made uh, the professors make the book in not in English, but in in. in their own mm -hmm. language, so sometimes probably there are some books about American history that, that are in in language that are kind of exotic, and, and for that it's going to be difficult. But I still think that maybe there there is now a moment in, in, of, of trying to make American history more global, because I think it has reached out a lot of of interest. Even here in, 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 in Peru, I, 
there has been the first thesis about the U.S. or in a broad way, maybe, because it was about the relationships of the of Peru and, and the U.S. And it's really interesting. So, yeah, I mean, it, maybe it's a it's a moment where where the interest in in studying the U.S. it's growing. It's also growing in some way. Mm -hmm. I think that's I think that's right, and and it's obviously when we're talking about the modern U.S., um, we're really talking about global processes. So you can't uh, you can't really write the history of of the U.S. in the latter part of, of the 20th century without having a global perspective in that work. Um, and that also highlights, I think, the need for uh, for scholars from all over the world to take a look at the U.S. So if we just look at uh, uh, example uh, of, of the Ken Burns documentary, the multi-part documentary on, on Vietnam or the war in Vietnam that came out, I think, last year, uh, you can't really write the history of the Vietnam War without the Vietnamese. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that U.S. historians struggle with, with bringing in um, the sort of outside perspective, um, but I really do think that, that in this moment and, and in this time that we're living in that is so global, um, whether it be scholars from the outside looking in at the U.S. or U.S. scholars working on American history um, looking to sources outside of the U.S. and looking at the work being done outside the U.S. I really think that that we're at a moment where it's really we're really growing into this global community of historians and scholars and the exchanges that you can have today. Uh, again, I'm going to bring out social media, but it's not just social media. Uh, it's the fact that we're able to look at, at primary sources from all over the world uh, online. It's the fact that that we're able to communicate with our colleagues on, on the other side of the, the, <laughs> the world, like we're doing right yeah. now over Skype. Uh, I think that all of this really means that we're in a very productive time of studying global history, uh, but not just global history, but specific histories with the global in mind. Yeah, I think that's a really important reflection. I think with that we could end that. So where do people who find you online? Uh, so basically on, on Twitter, uh, at Oscar Winberg, and I mean, I'm I'm writing for popular outlets as well. So you know, uh, keep keep an eye on 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 social media, and, and you'll find pieces on on Made by History at at the Washington Post and and different publications. Uh, again, in a global sense. So thanks, Oscar. Thank you.